Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this beautiful autumn day which you have created, a day which we have never seen before. A day full of opportunity to worship you in spirit and truth and to love and serve our neighbor and to rest. We thank you, God, for those whom you have called to eternal rest. We thank you for the lives they have led and all that they have meant to us. And we thank you that they now rest with you in your divine and holy and loving presence. We could never thank you enough for all that they mean to us. Bless us now with your word. Support us, encourage us, strengthen us on our own life journeys, journeys of discipleship. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise that you are due. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. My sermon text for this All Saints Sunday is the gospel lesson, which has been read from Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 31. My sermon title for today is Reversing Course. Reversing Course. Jesus' most famous sermon of all is typically taken to be the Sermon on the Mount, which occupies three whole chapters of Matthew's Gospels, chapters 5, 6, and 7, begins with the Beatitudes and sounds the keynote of the new age which Jesus came to introduce. Today's text from Luke 6 is a portion of Luke's version of this same sermon, known as the Sermon on the Plain here. Uh, you'll note in verse 17, which is actually just outside of our text for this morning, uh, that it locates Jesus on a quote-unquote level place, unlike Matthew's mountaintop. Uh, Luke's version is much shorter than Matthew's. Not only is it not three whole chapters, uh, but it runs only from verses 17 through 49 of just this one chapter, Luke chapter 6. The accounts in the two Gospels are largely the same, particularly in sentiment, uh, but there are some differences. Uh, here in Luke, this sermon follows immediately on the heels of Jesus' calling of his 12 disciples, while back in Matthew, he has called perhaps four of them, but the remainder are not called and listed until at least a few chapters later. In Matthew, it seems to be entirely a teaching event or a teaching moment, uh, but here in Luke, there exists a context of power and healing as well. Verse 18, again just outside of our text this morning, indicates the people had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And all those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all in the crowd were trying to touch Jesus because power came out from him and healed all of them. Matthew has eight or nine, depending on how you count, beatitudes, while Luke only has half that number, four. Matthew only has beatitudes, that is, blessings or blessed are those who, while Luke has an accompanying section here of woes. Matthew has no version of verses 24 through 26 herein, in other words. Uh, Matthew seems to be softer and more conciliatory. And Luke seems to be more pointed and provocative and perhaps even confrontational on a couple of fronts. Number one, you see, Matthew spiritualizes it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. While Luke keeps it 
in the direct earthly realm of the nitty-gritty. Blessed are the poor, period. Blessed are the hungry, period. And number two, Matthew is impersonal. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. While Luke is starkly and pointedly personal, calling out people in his audience directly, blessed are you who are poor. You who are hungry now. You who weep now. But woe to you who are rich. You who are full now. You who are laughing now. It is if Matthew's Jesus is cautious and persuasive, while Luke's Jesus has thrown caution to the wind and is poking you in the chest, deliberately trying to elicit an unwelcome conversation. Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, here Luke's Sermon on the Plain, is really, in my opinion, the clearest, most concise distillation of a Christian life, ethically speaking, rivaled perhaps only by Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. That is, when one claims to be a Christian, his or her life is lived ethically according to this set of standards that we see before us today. Now, what it means to be a Christian theologically or doctrinally or confessionally means to accept and believe in the Trinity, one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ is both fully God and fully human. Some version of substitutionary atonement, namely that Christ took our place and paid the penalty for our sins through his death and resurrection, and that we are therefore now justified by grace through faith apart from from works of the law, a free gift of God. But what it means to be a Christian ethically in your practical manner of daily living as a result of your theological or doctrinal beliefs is to love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone slaps or punches you on one side of your face, turn and offer the other side as well. If anyone robs you of your coat, offer up your shirt as well. I like Alan's face. Y'all should have the same face. He's going... Give to how many people? Everyone who begs from you. If anyone steals your property, let them have it. Don't seek to get it back. That's one reason I always chuckle when people say America is a Christian nation. Or was founded as a Christian nation. And America is not alone in such claims. Other nations make similar claims. Because has there ever been a nation in the history of the world whose citizens have conducted themselves according to this set of ethical imperatives? Has any nation related to other nations based upon this set of principles? I suspect that such a nation would not long exist. 
before it was quietly annexed by a neighboring country. I submit to you, my friends, that this scripture and this teaching of our Lord and Savior is among the most challenging, convicting, certainly impractical, and quite possibly impossible of all New Testament scriptures to truly heed and obey. I invite your rumination on not only asking if this text describes you personally, but also if you have ever known anyone personally to whom it actually applies. We as Christians are very quick to discuss and to take stands on the ethics of such issues as abortion and LGBTQ folks, guns and immigration, but these verses before us today almost never make it into our conversations. Have you ever wondered why, in the midst of controversies surrounding the public posting of the Ten Commandments, no one that I know of anyway, has ever endorsed publicly posting Luke's Beatitudes and Woes here, which many scholars posit them the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament law and Ten Commandments. When G.K. Chesterton, that famous British Christian apologist, tackled the difficulty of Christian discipleship, he wrote in part, My point is that the world did not tire of the church's ideal, but of its realities. Monasteries were impugned not for the chastity of monks, but for the unchastity of monks. Christianity was unpopular not because of the humility of Christians, but because of the arrogance of Christians. Certainly, if the church failed, it was largely through church people. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting Rather, it has been found difficult and left untried. In the midst of such a frightening reality of the complete role reversal that is inherent in the coming kingdom of God, where the poor and the hungry and the downcast and rejected are the ones who are blessed, and the rich and the full and the merry and the popular will be none of the above. And in the midst of this most difficult of ethical exhortations, the only thing that seems hopeful or at least possible is the last verse here, which has for generations been referred to simply as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That at least seems possible. Some have even posited that this golden rule is in fact the gospel itself in succinct form. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It certainly seems to be the heart of Jesus' ethical teaching and even adds to it in Matthew's version, chapter 7, verse 12, for this is the law and the prophets. This difficult, unsettling passage today, which culminates in this timeless golden rule, is actually based on love. One commentator remarks the essence of the Christian life is love, with the general principle stated in verse 31. While another opines, these radical demands are seen not in a high moral tone, but rather in the overriding concern for love. Indeed, love is a top-down reality for us as Christians. 1 John chapter 4 states unequivocally twice, God 
is love. John 3.16 demonstrates the actions of such a God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believeth in him may not perish but may have eternal life. For Jesus, from Jesus' teaching, we know that the two greatest commands of all are to what? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also to love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul reminds us, so faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And 1 John 4 brings it full, full circle, lest we despair of our inadequacy. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent God's Son. It has been remarked by a poet, If life is a battle, love is its victory. If life is a story, love is its theme. If life is music, love is its melody. If life is a flower, love is its fragrance. The Greek poet Sophocles penned, One word removes all the weight and burden of life. And that one word is love. God's kingdom is a kingdom of love, my friends. And it is a radical countercultural love which upends every human society such that the earliest Christians in the book of Acts can be accused of turning this world upside down and yields the role reversals found here in Luke's Beatitudes and Woes of verses 20 through 26. But those states of human beings are not the only thing that is reversed. The underlying concept behind the golden rule, the quid pro quo, has been reversed too. God himself has reversed course, you see. Obadiah, verse 15 in the Old Testament reads, As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return upon your own head. Through the incarnation of God in the body of His Son, Jesus the Christ, God has taken away the curse and the punishment. Now, as we have done, it shall not be done to us. Our deeds, because of Jesus, shall not return upon our own heads. Our deeds, rather, were placed upon Christ's sweat-soaked brow in the form of a crown of thorns. As we have done, it shall not be done unto us. That's some good news right there. As we have given, we have not received. As we have sown, we have not reaped. As we have sinned, we have been forgiven. As we have trespassed, we have been exonerated. As we have severed our relationship with God and the divine and the holy, God has restored it and reconciled us. As we have been lost in hatred, God has found us. In love. And because of that, the great grace and mercy of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And now to borrow the language of verses 27 through 30, because God loves us when we were his enemy. Because God does good to us 
when we hate him. Because God blesses us when we curse him. Because he turned the other cheek when we spat on the one side. Because he has given us of his own spirit. Because he now lives inside of each and every one of us. Through the power and the form of the Holy Spirit. We can, to borrow a phrase, go and do likewise. When we took away God's favor, he didn't withhold his grace and mercy. He gives to everyone who begs from him. When we took away God's righteousness, he didn't ask for it back. God desires to see himself in his people. That's why Leviticus says, be ye holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. And Matthew says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And Luke says here in only five more verses, be merciful as your father. Father is merciful. There is a time and a place for everything, my friends. There is a time and a place for reflection, self-assessment, and repentance at our broken, sinful, and fallen state. There is a time and a place to recognize how we are rich and full and jovial and well-regarded and therefore to beat our breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But there is also a time and a place for celebration and joy and gratitude to God, for God's free grace and mercy, unconditional love, uh, declaring us to be righteous through the blood of the Lamb. There is a time and a place to recognize as well how we are poor, hungry, weeping, and reviled. And therefore, ours is the kingdom and we will be vindicated because we are designated as saints and included in that great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about. Because Daniel informs us in our first lesson assigned for today that we shall receive the kingdom of God and we shall possess it not only forever, but also forever and ever and ever. Because Paul informs us in 1 Corinthians that we, you and I, are one day to judge this world. And not only that, even to judge angels, there is a time and a place for verse 23. And that time is now. And that place is here. We can rejoice in this day. We can leap for joy. For our reward is great in heaven. And heaven is not only our destination. Our eternal home on high. But it is also a present and current reality. Every time we reflect on what Christ has done for us. And we react out of that place. In Christian love and service for all of God's people. A verse from that noble hymn for all the saints reminds us and encourages us oh blessed communion fellowship divine we feebly struggle they in glory shine yet all are one in thee for all are thine alleluia, alleluia that my friends is reversing course, amen